You're listening to the Magnum version of the Savage Lovecast. www.savagelovecast.com. If you're stuck in a relationship quandary, or if you're looking for sexual harmony, well, there's nothing you can't ask on the Savage Lovecast. Big new study out of the University of California, San Francisco, University of Texas, and Washington University made headlines all over the country last week. The Name of the study, the study's headline is Rather Dry, Correlation Between Pubic Hair Grooming and STIs, Results from a Nationally Representative Probability Sample. That was the name of the study. Uh, 7,500 people took part in the study. They responded to the study. 66% of the men uh, and 80-ish percent of the women reported pubic hair grooming to various degrees from a little trim to waxing and scraping it all the fuck off. And pubic hair groomers we're roughly 80% likelier to report, not to have had, but to report having had, self-reporting. This is what this study was, self-reporting. These groomers, all the men and all the women, likely to report having had an STI, sexually transmitted infection, at some point in their lives. Extreme groomers, which is how the authors of the study describe people who took it all the fuck off at least 11 times a year, were the likeliest to report having had an STI at some point in their lives. The headlines in the newspapers reacting to and reporting on this study, shaving pubic hair related to sexually transmitted infections, colon, study. That, that was the New York Daily News and their takeaway from the study, you might want to keep the grass on the field to protect yourself. Time Magazine, why you may want to rethink grooming your pubic hair. Again, also suggesting that Pubic hair is a kind of force field that may protect you from sexually transmitted infections. And as much as it pains me to say this, at two National Public Radio, going bare down there may boost the risk of STDs. Quoting from NPR, people who have mowed the lawn at least once in their lifetimes were nearly twice as likely to say they had had at least one sexually transmitted disease and, quote, extreme groomers, those who remove all of their pubic hair more than 11 times a year each, were more than four times as likely to have had an infection. High-frequency groomers who just trim their hair a few times a month fell between the two extremes. They were three times likelier to have reported an STI. No, 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 no. The study demonstrated no causal relationship between removing pubic hair and contracting an STI. And just sitting here off the top of my pointy head, I can think of lots of reasons why people who trim their pubic hair might have higher risk or higher incidence of STIs or higher awareness of their risk of STI or higher awareness of their having had an STI. Someone who's regularly removing their pubic hair is taking a closer look at their genitalia. They may have a waxer who's down there, nose to twat, once a month, who may flag for them a problem. And someone who regularly trims their pubic hair might have more sex partners and then higher risk for sexually transmitted infections. Also, someone who regularly trims their pubic hair might be more sex positive in addition to being more sexually active and therefore maybe less invested in the stigma and shame around self-reporting having had an STI at some point in their life. Dr. Debbie Herbenick, though, Frequent Savage Lovecast guest, Dr. Debbie Herbenick of the University of Indiana and the Kinsey Institute, flagged, I think, the most important and most revealing stat that everyone seemed to miss. Writing at Kinsey Institute's blog, Dr. Herbenick said, half of all Americans will contract an STI, 
However, in their sample, only 14% of groomers and 8% of non-groomers reported ever having had an STI. Hmm. So if we're going to conclude based on the results of this study that pubic hair grooming makes a person more vulnerable to contracting an STI, what are we to make of the fact that the participants in the study had such remarkably low rates of STI, all of the participants, the groomers and the non-groomers, compared to the average American? Using the same kind of logic that people employed to leap from this study's correlation to causation, I guess we can conclude that being a research subject in a study like this provides a great deal of protection, practically prophylactic. If you're really concerned about protecting yourself from sexually transmitted infections, it doesn't matter whether you groom your pubic hair or don't groom your pubic hair. If you really want to be safe, you need to enroll in a study about removing your pubic hair because that seems to confer a great deal of safety using the kind of logic that people use to leap to the conclusions that people up to. You got to give some credit to the researchers. They didn't suggest that removing pubic hair causes sexually transmitted infections. They only flagged the correlation between grooming and self-reporting higher rates of sexually transmitted infections. Here's the conclusion from the study itself. Among a representative sample of U.S. residents, pubic hair grooming was positively related to self-reported STI history. Further research is warranted to gain insight into STI risk reduction strategies. So credit to the researchers for calling for more study, but I got to say, it seems to me a very silly study to ask people, do you shave your pubes and have you ever had an STI, finding a correlation and then rushing that, finding a correlation and then publishing and knowing that the media can't or won't distinguish between correlation and causation when it comes to studies that touch on sex because the clicks and the eyeballs are too valuable because sensationalizing a study like this is an irresistible temptation. I think it might have been better to do the research that you called for at the end of this paper, rolling out this study, before you published this study and made it one big study that you published all together rather than putting out this clickbait rather than rolling this out, knowing how the media would distort it. So if you like trimming your pubic hair, go right ahead and trim your pubic hair. If you're thinking about sleeping with someone who trims their pubic hair and these headlines gave you pause, please ignore these headlines. And let's all wait for more science before we jump to any insane conclusions about the risks associated with pubic hair grooming. Speaking of science, coming up on today's show, we have Kevin Sue, researcher at Northwestern University, to talk to us about his recent study and what you got and tons of your questions and calls and comments all coming up on today's show. Hi, Dan. I'm calling to leave a message for a friend. Um, I'm a 23-year-old female American but living abroad, and my friend is 30. She is Australian living here. And um, for the past, Three months or so, she's been living with her boyfriend's parents as her boyfriend has been working abroad. Things were fine at the start. They really took care of her, took her in like their own daughter. Um, but things started to get a little strange towards the end. Apparently, for the last month or so, things have been getting a little strange between her and her boyfriend's father. She's always felt that there was a sort of flirtiness from him, but she brushed it off. You know, maybe it's cultural differences. And then it started getting weird. So when she'd be leaving for work in the morning, 
you know, she'd say goodbye and she'd get the regular kiss kiss. But soon dad started to try to kiss her on the lips. And it recently, I guess last week, it took itself one step further where it was Friday. She was heading to work and he tried to kiss her on the lips open mouth. So she's thankfully getting her own place now. She's moving out of his parents' place. So she's concerned about what to do because, okay, now her boyfriend's going to get back. She doesn't know whether or not she should call him, tell him. Also because it's going to be Christmas coming up and... Yeah, she doesn't want it to be strange around the dinner table. So, you know, she was trying to, she's kind of making herself feel guilty that she let herself let it get too far. And I assured her, like, you know, obviously you're in a strange situation. You're relying on them to, when you're living with them, so you don't want to make it weird if it's not. But obviously now you need to protect yourself. But should she say anything? When should she say something? What should she say? All questions for you, Dan. Should she say something? Absolutely. Yes, she should say something. And she shouldn't worry about making things feel strange. Things are already strange. And she didn't make them strange. Her boyfriend's dad made them strange. This is not her fault. What should she say? She should say to her boyfriend, your dad tried to slip me the tongue. I was getting weird vibes and I kind of ignored them, hoping that I was misreading him or there was a cultural difference between Australia and America that I was not aware of. And yeah, that wasn't it. Your dad slipped me the tongue. Your dad made a pass at me. Your dad is trying to tongue kiss me. What are we going to do about it? And your friend is 30. If her boyfriend is roughly her age or maybe a little older, maybe dad is getting up there. Maybe this is, to be charitable, an early sign of dementia or some larger cognitive problem if dad is 60 plus 70 plus that could be it so rather than not raising this issue for fear of making dad feel uncomfortable when dad has already made you feel so uncomfortable raising this issue could get dad hustled into the doctor's office and could discover some medical condition or cognitive issue that needs addressing. And you will be the hero. And you will hopefully be on the receiving end of an apology, not just from your boyfriend for the actions of his father, but in a moment of clarity from your boyfriend's father for his own actions. Or your friend will be on the receiving end of both those apologies. To be uncharitable, dad's a creep. Your friend's boyfriend If he doesn't already know that, needs to know that. If he already knew that and he didn't give his girlfriend a heads the fuck up, that's a problem that they need to address in their relationship. But he needs to know that. And that needs to be on the table. If dad is a creep, maybe you don't want to spend Christmas with his parents. Maybe your boyfriend needs to go in there and throw some thunderbolts around and lay down some fucking law with his dad and have a confrontation that may indeed be long overdue if dad has creeped on previous girlfriends and other people, other members of the family. So, again, your friend, she should say something, and she should say exactly what happened to her boyfriend first. Hey, Dan. Um, my name's Chris. I'm a, about a year-long listener, um, straight guy, uh, 44 years old. I've been in about a three-year relationship with an incredible um, woman. It started as um, something a bit... She had a boyfriend, and um, and it was a bit secretive, and... She then asked him if he wanted to be in an open relationship, and he said no. And we took a break for a bit, got back together, were open for a while. Uh, and that kind of bothered me, and it became an arms race, and um, just based on my own insecurities. Um, and then we, we went monogamous, and then to try to 
on my side to try to open things up and, and give her some respect for her um, needs, I we tried um, swinging and um, went to some house parties and some clubs and uh, you know it was difficult for me, but I was trying to evolve and um, you know be a good partner and uh, I thought I was working through um, a lot of these these problems that I was having. But what I've found is in terms of being jealous and just not being comfortable you know, sharing, um, you know, the, the women that I love. Apparently, I, I, I had not dealt with them and I had I had blasted through them and, and had not actually worked on the, the underlying root of the problem. Um, the other night I had I had drank a little bit and um, I uh, all of it came out at once and I snapped and uh, I uh, I didn't I didn't hit her, but I, I did. I did scare her um, enough that we're not together anymore, and it's it's heartbreaking, you know, to scare somebody that that you love is uh you know it's the worst. So one, I just wanted to you know say to all all to to everyone out there, if you do put this on the air, that you know be careful um, as you step into these new spaces, relationships that are open, swinging, and make sure you're working through any of the jealousies, any of the the problems that come up, and talk about it a lot. Um, I didn't do a good enough job communicating. I, I, I tried to be strong, and I guess I, I forced some of the stuff down. I've apologized. We've met. We actually met yesterday, and she told me, you know, how my actions made her feel, which shattered the rest of uh, what was left of my heart. Um, you know, to make your partner feel like that's just horrible. And, you know, my question to you is, you know, is there a way to to reel things back? Is there a way that I can that I can try and rekindle this? Um, or is it something that I should just say, hey, obviously there's a problem um, with with our different uh, structural philosophical uh, relationship goals, and um, and, I, and we should both move on. Um, I love this girl. She's one of the most pragmatic, intelligent, honest, and dedicated women I've ever met. And we have an incredible, uh, we had an incredible uh, sexual connection. I'm a little confused about how confused you seem about what your relationship goals are or were or where you thought you were going at the beginning of this relationship. When you met this woman, she was in a relationship with someone else. She cheated with you. Then she attempted with him to roll out a retroactive open relationship agreement. That didn't go anywhere. And then you two got together. And when you got together with her, you knew her to be a woman who was incapable of honoring a monogamous commitment that she had made or not cut out for monogamy. She obviously wasn't cut out for monogamy. She wasn't doing monogamy when she was ostensibly supposed to be doing monogamy. And you went into this relationship wanting what she wasn't giving you at the start and wasn't giving the person that she was officially with when you two started fucking each other, which was monogamy. So it seems to me that you went into this relationship with unrealistic expectations and then you began to attempt to accommodate and make room for the person that you knew her to be and should have been able to recognize her to be at the outset of this relationship and the person she obviously knows herself to be not someone who is interested in having just one sex partner so you went from cheating at first to exclusive but open to monogamous then swinging and that wasn't anywhere you ever wanted to be but of course again it was where you were at the very outset of this relationship. It was exactly where she wanted to be. So what you needed to recognize early on in this relationship as wonderful and glorious, a human being as she was and is still that you two were fundamentally sexually incompatible, that you wanted what she never gave you and didn't give her ex boyfriend either that she cheated on you with. You wanted a monogamous commitment. You have too strong a desire to 
fully possess someone sexually, you're too jealous and faking it until you make it when it comes to that kind of ragey jealousy. That's not a recipe for success. It is a recipe for the kind of explosive blow up that you experienced. I appreciate you calling to warn others, but I'm sure others listening want to jump in a time machine and go warn you, as I do at the outset of this relationship, that you have unrealistic expectations for what this woman could give you. She wasn't giving it to the person she was with when she started giving it to you. And she was never going to be able to give it to you either. You tried to bend, you tried to grow, but it's not who you are or what you want. And I think you needed more clarity and self-awareness around that. Non-monogamy is not for everyone and not being capable of non-monogamous behavior or relationships doesn't make you a bad or damaged person. It doesn't mean that you have terrible, toxic, green-eyed monster jealousy issues that you can't get over. It just means that it ain't for you for whatever reason. They're not for everybody, these non-monogamous relationship things. But that's not your question. The question you asked is, should you say, hey, there's a problem here with our relationship goals, ding, 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 yes. Or should I try to reel her back somehow? No, no, you should not fucking try to reel her back somehow. And it's not up to you whether she can be reeled back. She dumped you. She knows that you would rather not have been dumped. So ball is in her court in the real department. And unless she's willing to reel you back in, how you feel is kind of irrelevant. And I think it's in your best interest and her best interest that you find different partners, that you were emotionally compatible, that you liked, respected, and admired her, and she, you thought she was an awesome woman. All of that can be true alongside sexually incompatible and probably shouldn't be together and aren't together anymore. And that is probably for the best. Pro tip going forward, you're likelier to have a successful, long-term committed monogamous relationship with someone that you aren't cheating on someone else with at the outset of that relationship. Hey, Dan, I'm just calling because I have a quick question about my relationship. Um, I've been with my boyfriend for almost two years. I'm 25. He's 34. We live together. We have a great life together. We're very generally compatible, peaceful, happy um, I go to school, I work full time. He also does. So things are good. Just one thing is that he constantly monitors what I eat. Um, and it's weird for me because I'm a very fit person. I really care about taking care of myself. And even though I don't have very much time, I work out two to three times a week. I always take the opportunity to take the stairs, walk. Um, I eat very healthy. I prep my meals. I make an effort. I don't smoke. I, I work out on the weekend. Like I drink tons of water. <laughs> he and I, we do these things together. It's like part of what makes us compatible. He's extremely into the gym. I mean, he goes every day, six days a week. He's a little bit more into it than me. Um, but he, like, orders for me in restaurants, and he reminds me of what I ate before. He reminds me of how much I've eaten during the day. Like, if he sees that I'm eating a big dinner, he'll, like, tell me that I need to be careful or slow down or he'll, like, take the food from me and eat it himself or throw it away. <laughs> like, for example, when I had my period last month, I was eating dark chocolate in the bed and he like ripped it out of my hands and threw it in the trash. Um, <laughs> he's 
always asking me, oh, did you work out? Did you take, what did you do? How active were you? Like, um, always reminds me to go to the gym more. He pressures me about it. It's like, no matter what I do achieve and maintain with my busy schedule, he's just never satisfied with what he sees in me around this. And he, um, he's like obsessed with my diet. (laughs) It's kind of driving me crazy. We've had this conversation so many times where I tell him that it's inappropriate. It's undermining. It's how I tell him how it makes me feel. And every time he says, but I'm just saying it because I care about your health and I want you to be healthy. I don't know. He And I have a brother who's overweight, but me and my brother have completely different lifestyles. So that's what he brings into the conversation is that I just don't know my own genetics and that it's going to hit me any minute that my metabolism is going to shut down and I'm going to get overweight. And then he's going to not be attracted to me. Like he has this whole scenario in his head of what if, and I can't get him to stop. I can't even eat breakfast in front of him without him commenting. I would love your advice. My friends say that he's gaslighting me, but I just need some words to say to him. I want you to tell me if this is normal. I get it that you should want to be healthy and attractive for your partner, I'm totally on board with that, but this is too much. You promised me a quick question and you didn't deliver. That was a really long question, but I'm going to give you a quick answer. Dump the motherfucker already. He is a monstrous piece of shit. You are not quite two years into this relationship. If you put up with this, if you swallow this, if you stick around, this is not the end of the ways in which he is going to Attempt to control, undermine, belittle, and yes, indeed, overused word at this moment in relationship discussion time, but gaslight you. That this is the opening salvo. This is the first front in his long war against your agency, against your self-esteem, against your ability to make your own choices and your own decisions, even in the context of a partnered relationship. Fuck him. Get out. This is obnoxious, controlling, shitty, abusive behavior, grabbing food out of your hands. When you're having a period, you're having cramps. Doctors say, have some dark chocolate. You're having some dark chocolate and this asshole snatches it out of your hands and throws it in the garbage. You know what was the next thing that needed to hit the bin? Him. You needed to grab him and throw him in the fucking garbage. You're less than two years in. You are not married. You have not scrambled your DNA together. Thank God extricating yourself from this relationship is so much easier than you think it's going to be. This person who is so concerned with what's going in your mouth, here's what needs to come out of your mouth. Fuck you. I'm out. I'm done. I'm gone. Get a fucking therapist, you asshole, to help you with this, or it's going to destroy every relationship you're ever in. Good fucking bye. That's what needs to come out of your mouth. All right, we're going to take a quick break from your calls. There are tons of sex researchers and scientists and doctors out there trying to figure out what we're doing and why we're doing it and who we're doing it to. And every once in a while, we like to invite one of those researchers or scientists onto the program to talk about the findings of their latest study for a little segment we call What You Got. got? 
All right, joining us by phone from Evanston, Illinois, we've got Kevin Sue, a sexuality researcher in the Department of Psychology at Northwestern University. Hey, Kevin, what do you got? Hey, Dan, thanks for having me on the show. Uh, so today I'm going to be talking to you guys about a study on men who are sexually attracted to transgender women, uh, specifically transgender women who have retained their penis. Uh, they're colloquially known as shemales, but as you might know, Dan, uh, that term is uh, considered offensive in some circles. So for this study, we've opted to call them gynandromorphs. So gyne meaning woman, andro meaning man, morph meaning form. So literally man, woman, form. And uh, we, we chose this term based on a term that was used previously in the scientific literature, uh, gynandromorphophilia, referring to sexual attraction to uh, essentially such individuals, transgender women who have retained their penis. It's a little bit of a tongue twister word there for you. A lot of these terms uh, that we're going to talk about perhaps then in the framing with your study are really controversial in the trans community. So we invite trans people who object to call the hotline and leave your comments if you feel so exercised. But please, Kevin, go ahead. Yeah. So, uh, you know, just to avoid some of that uh, needless offense, both here in this interview and also uh, talking about it in those in the in the study, uh, we're going to use the term gynandromorph to refer to such individuals, again, transgender women who have retained their penis. And specifically, I'll even abbreviate that to just GAM. And then we're going to talk about or refer to men who have sexual attraction toward those individuals, GAMs, as uh, gynandromorphophilic men or GAMP men. Uh, and that, that, I don't know if that terminology is a little too confusing, but... Um, We've got gorgeous GAMs. That's actually kind of yes, nice because exactly gorgeous gams, gorgeous yeah. gams, and the guys who are into them or gamps, not to be confused with gimps, gamps. That's gamp with an a. So, what did you find out about guys who are attracted to trans women who've retained their penises in your study? Yeah, so in the study, which uh, I co-authored with uh, Alan Rosenthal and Michael Bailey at Northwestern, which uh, I'm sure you're familiar with, 314 gamps and uh, 211 men without such sexual attraction, so kind of uh, your more typical straight guy without that kind of a sexual attraction. And uh, we gave them a survey uh, on their sexual attractions, their sexual interests, sexual behavior, relationship history, and other aspects of their sexuality and personality. And we were interested in really understanding what it was about GAMPs, what makes them different from your typical straight man. Oh, there's a lot of unanswered questions as to whether, you know, are these guys gay, are they straight, are they perhaps bisexual, that have really been left unanswered uh, through any means, scientific or otherwise. Uh, We have a lot of people, you know, even writing into your column sometimes, Dan, uh, on Savage Love, just wondering, you know, is their partner gay for liking uh, GAMS? And so uh, our, our survey was hoping to better understand that and I'd like to also bring in uh, another study that we did on the same phenomenon uh, where it's a smaller study where we got small samples of straight, gay, and GAMPs men, mm-hmm. and we brought them into the lab, and we actually showed them erotic stimuli, uh, so male-male sex scenes, female-female sex scenes, and GAM-GAM uh, kinds of stimuli. 
and uh, we measured their genital response uh, to watching those kinds of stimuli to see whether there were interesting differences between these three groups that could distinguish them. And what did you find? The main takeaway from both of these studies was that essentially gamp men are not gay, at least comparing them with the gay men in our samples and comparing them with the straight men, they were much more like the straight men in their sexual attraction patterns. Uh, for instance, we asked them, how sexually attracted are you to women? How sexually attracted to you, are you to gams? They were, on average, attracted to both of those kinds of people almost equally uh, and not so much to men. Mm. And this was reflected in their behavior as well. So they were less likely to have had sex with men than they were to have had sex with women or gams. And that finding should please uh, activists and other people in the trans community who argue that trans women with penises are women. And what this study seems to bear out is that men who are attracted to women and to trans women with penises are men who are attracted to women. Yeah, that's exactly right, Dan. It seems like the guys who are seeking out trans women specifically uh, seem to be heterosexual in all other senses of what that really means in terms of attraction, uh, behavior, relationship history. And could could we not say perhaps heterosexual in this sense as well? Instead of making a distinction, yes. these guys are heterosexual uh, yeah. in every other sense except for this carve-out for these women who happen to have penises. But this is just heterosexuality too. Yes, almost. And we did talk about in our paper that we're conceptualizing this kind of sexual attraction to GAMS as almost an unusual form of heterosexuality, maybe a different variety of it, so to speak. So now we, so now we can say heterosexuality exists on a spectrum all its own. It, it could be that, or it could be that this is kind of an interesting twist on it, because again, these are, it's not a typical kind of attraction. Uh, most men are not attracted to GAMS, but there are this subset of men who seem to have this attraction and for them it does seem to be to almost coexist with their typical heterosexual attraction because again they do still go out and have sex with women they do seem to be attracted to women and in fact in the laboratory they get aroused by the, the female stimuli just as much as they do by the gam stimuli that we showed them uh, and the heterosexual men that we brought in they didn't have the same pattern. They they were attracted to women. They did get aroused by the female stimuli, but not really to the GAMP stimuli. So it, the, the GAMPs had a unique propensity to be aroused by, attracted to, and seek out sexually uh, GAMPs. To seek out sexually women of all kinds. Yeah, it, that is a good way to put it. So yes. what is the takeaway here? And I'm thinking particularly of the letters I get, sometimes from panicked, cisgendered female partners of straight guys and they get on that guy's browser internet history or they dig into the porn cache and they find that in addition to the other kinds of porn that their boyfriend or husband might be looking at, he's also looking at porn that features trans women who have penises and they panic and wonder and they ask me inevitably, invariably, does this mean my boyfriend or husband is really gay? And so now Resting partly on the results of this study, I can tell them, no, that doesn't mean your boyfriend's gay, quite the opposite. I think you would be right to say that. I think that is definitely something that is true, that these men almost entirely seem to have very little interest in men. Now, there is a little bit of a caveat in that in these studies, we have found that uh, GAMPs were more likely than the straight men to have had 
sex with men, uh, again, not to the level that a typical gay man does. So we would not go as far as to say that they're like gay men, but perhaps they have a, they're a bit more bisexual, so to speak. Um, now, does that mean that they're going to leave their wife or that they're, or girlfriend or that they're not attracted to their wife or girlfriend? I think the answer is likely not. There are some GAMPs who strongly prefer a GAM partner, so they really only can get off to, uh, you know, GAM stimuli or a GAM partner. But it seems for the most part, most of the GAMPs are kind of indiscriminate. So they, they don't mind a female partner and they don't mind a GAM partner. They're equally attracted to both. Before we let you go, Kevin, uh, if people want to read the study itself, where can they find it? It will be online. Uh, on, it's published online first uh, on, in the Archives of Sexual Behavior. It's a special issue called The Puzzle of Sexual Orientation. Uh, it's an article titled, Who are Gynandromorphophilic Gyna- Men Character- Characterizing Men with Sexual Interest in Transgender Women? Kevin Sue, sexuality researcher in the Department of Psychology at Northwestern University. Thank you for jumping on the phone today and sharing the results of your study with us. Thanks a lot, Dan. Hi, Dan. I'm a 26-year-old straight female. I'm calling because I recently met a guy on OkCupid, and we started sexting and talking, and pretty quickly it came out that his kink is um, male chastity. And at first I was kind of not into it and we just had a funny conversation and I was basically like, good luck, you know, this isn't my thing. But the more he familiarized me with his kink, the more interested I got. And eventually our sexting got really in depth and I met up with him and had unprotected sex with him. I nervously looked up, you know, all sorts of possible STDs the next day in a scared frenzy and realized that the HSV-1 that I have uh, can be transmitted uh, genitally. And I was kind of in the dark about that and thought maybe I was just one of the people that has the, the strand of herpes that people can't, you know, transmit. So I decided to tell him and um, he made some weird comments about how, you know, that's the disease that gives people Bell's palsy. And if you get it in your eye, you're fucked and whatnot. Um, And basically kind of gave me the brush off. But then he kept sending me, you know, dick pics and telling me how turned on he was by things I was saying. And now I'm just kind of confused. So my question is, do you think I should try and warm this guy up to the fact that I, you know, have herpes and that there are a lot of other things we can do that don't include intercourse to continue this potential thing we have going on? Or should I just let it go? Well, if he's into chastity play and he's a real chastity player, then presumably he has collection of male chastity devices, chastity belts for men, cages you lock guys cocks in and so you could engage in chastity play safely for the next 150 years and not expose him to hsv1 or anything else ever again because his dick will be locked up that said if he is in the habit of having unprotected intercourse with women that he's just met on dating apps he most likely has been exposed to hsv1 and other shit in the past and as we have discussed exhaustively on this program with qualified advisors from Planned Parenthood, doctors, 
herpes is not that big a fucking deal. Most people who've been exposed to herpes have never had an outbreak. Many people who've had an outbreak had one and never had another one again. Some people who've had outbreaks had an outbreak that they didn't even notice and never had one again. Herpes, which can be transmitted skin to skin, is really common. And the panic and the stigma attached to it is exists out of all proportion to its actual impact or effects. That said, if I were you, I would go to this guy who's having this panic attack about HSV-1, and it's unfortunate that you did not know that, of course, that could be sexually transmitted, and we will blame not you for failing to Google in advance of that connection, but we will blame the American terrible sex education system, which usually is better about acquainting people with sexually transmitted infections because it's all about trying to scare people away from each other's genitals. But we'll just blame shitty sex ed for the fact that you didn't know that. And say to him, look, again, like I said, like Dan Savage said on his podcast to me just the other day, if you are in the habit of regularly having unprotected intercourse with women you've just met online, you probably have been exposed to HSV-1 already, and it shouldn't be that big a deal. And I'm sorry I didn't know. I'm sorry I didn't tell you in advance. But now you know. And if you want to keep flirting with me, if you want to continue to interact with me sexually, you need to calm the fuck down. And so, caller, I wouldn't encourage you to go to him like your diseased, damaged goods that he can't touch with his dick ever again because you have herpes. You should be on meds. Hopefully, you're taking the effective meds out there for herpes now to suppress it, which makes you less infectious but not not infectious. And hopefully, he can be an adult about it and take the risks he's going to take knowingly which might mean unprotected intercourse with you at some point again in the future, or intercourse with you, including a condom on those occasions when you decide to take the chastity device off his dick as his key holder. That'll be up to you. And the condom will provide him some degree of protection from HSV-1, which isn't a game of tag. It's not like touch somebody with your genitals who has HSV-1, you automatically get it. It is about being exposed successfully, about the virus taking. And the odds that it took that one time that you guys had intercourse pretty low. The odds that it'll take if you're on your meds, if you're using condoms, also pretty low. So if he can get past his panic, if he can let go of the stigma and not shame you after you made your good faith apology about not being aware of what you should have been aware of and continue to see you and not let this loom over the relationship, then yeah, it sounds like you two might be a connection, particularly if you're into his kink, which it sounds like you might be. Not many women are into this kink. And it's a harmless, fun, crazy, goofy, nutty, uh, arousing kink. And I would encourage you to explore it with him if he can stop being a jerko about your herpes. Hey, Dan. I'm a gay male living on the East Coast. And I recently started dating a guy with whom I felt uh, a very strong initial connection with. And we actually said that we loved each other in a very short time of knowing each other um, because of this very deep sort of emotional understanding we have of each other, um, something that I have not had before in a partner, and I really, really love it. Um, and it, I actually have a difficult time opening up sexually to others, um, and very seldom have I ever lustful of anyone. And um, the people that I am lustful for are nine times out of ten, the people that I share a love for. Um, with that being said, uh, at first I wasn't very sexually attracted to him, not because um, I find him unattractive, but 
or rather that it's just that sort of personal opening up or um, that sort of just kind of lack of really a libido even. Um, so my question is this. Um, is it wrong for me to not be lustful over my partner? Does my partner deserve someone that can fulfill him more sexually? Um, and we've discussed open relationships because I try to tell him that um, while I am with him and while I, I do really enjoy him and I do love him, I don't want to limit his options sexually because I think that's a healthy thing to do. I don't want to control his um, his sex if that's not something that I can give him. So is that is that a bad thing to not be lustful for my partner? I would consider myself demisexual, um, maybe even asexual. But yeah, curious for your input, Dan. Is it a bad thing not to experience lust for your partner? No, absolutely not. So long as you aren't actively or passively misrepresenting yourself to your partner. And you haven't done that. You've been completely honest, completely straightforward about being asexual or demisexual and not experiencing sexual attraction or lust often or at all. And if he wants to be in a relationship with you regardless, and if you can carve out some space perhaps for him to explore sex with others and that exploration outside the relationship, those sexual contacts outside the relationship is what makes it possible for him to be in relationship with you if he's not willing to sacrifice sex to be with you, then that's a loving and perfectly functional, workable relationship where you're both accommodating each other. Zooming out for a second, it is not a problem for someone who's asexual to be in a relationship with someone who's sexual so long as the asexual person doesn't actively again or passively misrepresent themselves. Some would argue that people shouldn't assume that people that they're dating are not necessarily asexual. They shouldn't make assumptions about people's interests in sex. Okay, perhaps, but most people who are seeking intimate relationships, romantic relationships, it is generally understood that that includes a sexual component and 99-ish percent of everyone is sexual. And I think the onus is on the asexual in that situation where they're pursued by someone who's sexual to just disclose without shame because there's nothing shameful about being asexual, but to disclose because the other person is making a reasonable assumption about your interest in sex or your intentions, that sex comes bundled with romance and intimacy and that kind of commitment. And if in your case it doesn't, you got to speak up, you got to say, and if they choose to stay, then no, there's nothing wrong with you not experiencing lust for the person who's partnered with you, that person who has made an informed choice to be with you. But again, they need that information to be able to make that choice. And you have given him that information. You are doing absolutely nothing wrong. It sounds indeed like you are doing absolutely everything right. Hi, Dan. Um, this is a 43-year-old um, divorced woman in London, long-time listener, first-time caller. I met a man six months, six months ago on FetLife, and um, he wasn't the sort of guy I usually would go for. I'm sort of quite attractive Asian woman and I kind of fit into the whole Asian trope dominatrix type thing um, and he's a 53 year old ballet slipper loving transvestite um, and amazingly we hit it off and we had a really good connection and we've been seeing each other and having really special times and great weekends and connecting on so many levels um, and yesterday he came clean and confessed that the entire time we've been seeing each other, he's been lying to me um, quite 
deceitfully lying and callously um, telling untruths about his family situation. Uh, he's, he's not divorced, as he told me. Um, he doesn't have two grown-up children. He's actually still married, still living with his wife, has five children, three grandchildren. Uh, one of his children still living at home, and he knows he's blown it. So he, he knew that the lies were getting deeper and deeper and he couldn't get out of it. So he finally confessed. Um, and I said to him, you know, yes, you have blown it because it's not about the actual information, which I could have dealt with, but the fact that he has just lied and um, so, so casually, just casually lying about his life and making up stories at the drop of a hat. So it comes to the question, which is how do you, sort of solve for this sort of problem um, where you try and get all the information about people. How do you trust people when they tell you information? You know, is there anything I could have done in terms of better due diligence? Um, I ask very deep questions and I am very open with my own information and I take people at face value. Is there something I should do differently in future? You know, or is there nothing that can be done with people who insist on being pathological liars? Um, and also, should I even think about being friends with this guy? Because we, I think he did love me. He, he, he we, we did love each other and we get on. Um, is there any way we can still be friends? Because I like to stay in touch with my exes. Or do you think the fact that he has lied consistently means that he's disqualified himself because I can't trust the thing that he says. I dated a pathological liar once a long time ago, and I was completely smitten and totally taken in by him. But at a certain point, it began to dawn on me that I was being lied to all the time. And I had this, you know, he never confessed. He didn't come to me and come clean. I just started seeing holes in his stories. And it ended getting to the point where if he said it was raining, I went and looked out the window because I couldn't even trust that. He would lie about instantly verifiable or disprovable things like the weather or the time of day or what had just happened in front of my eyes. I'm not sure his crimes rise to the level of that diagnosis, pathological lying. He lied to you about one very specific aspect of his life his intimate life that he was involving you in. And that's scalding. And I understand why you would be so hurt. I can also understand why he might lie in the context of fat life, in the context of uh, a relationship with someone that perhaps he thought would be brief and perhaps he thought would be, you know, mutually beneficial and lovely and, but just a, a short term connection. Maybe that's all he's ever had on FetLife. And to keep that uncomplicated for himself, he is presented on FetLife to the people he meets through FetLife as single and unencumbered to avoid drama. And the deeper and deeper he got in with you emotionally, the more connected you became, perhaps as this turned into a relationship unexpectedly. He had to keep doubling and tripling and quadrupling down on the lies he told you at the outset. Because, and I'm not saying that makes it okay. And I'm not saying that people who are in fet life who are seeking sex partners to explore their kinks with should disappear their wives and children. But you can understand why many would. 
because it's not the sexiest topic. To go on FetLife and lead with your wife and your children and your grandchildren doesn't make you that desirable. And FetLife and some kink sites and some people's kinks are about creating an alternate sort of other person, a, a, a fantasy version of themselves. And in his fantasy version of themselves, perhaps he is unencumbered and only the parent of adult children. So, yeah, what do you do about this guy? I think you give him a little bit of credit for coming clean. That it wasn't that you busted him. It's that he decided that he couldn't keep, as he began to have deeper and deeper feelings for you, he couldn't keep misrepresenting himself in this way. And so he, at the risk of you terminating the relationship, which is what you decided to do, he confessed. He came clean. He told you the truth and stopped lying to you. If there were no other lies, if he didn't lie to you about other shit, if he didn't lie to you about career, if he didn't lie to you about weather, if he didn't lie to you about who else he might be seeing, who else he might be with, if it was just this thing that he tried to wall off from his kink life, which you were a part of before the kink life with you broke through to an emotional life with you as well, can you not understand why someone in his position, why many people on FetLife and other kink websites and adult friend finder and Ashley Madison and other places would tell that kind of lie, would bifurcate their emotional and sexual lives in that way to try to wall them off from each other, to protect their wife and their kids from this part of them and protect whoever they're seeing from that. And I'm not giving that my blessing necessarily because it was a misrepresentation to you that encouraged you to make assumptions about his emotional availability, uh, romantic availability, relationship availability that were not true. He was not unencumbered. He was not single and available and kinky and into you. He was married and unavailable and kinky and into you. And maybe he thought, and I think you should talk to him about this while you decide whether you can stay friends. Maybe at the outset he thought it would just be a week or two, one of those things that you wouldn't have any long-term interest in him or vice versa. And he thought there would be no harm, no foul in when our active lies, not lies of omission, but active lies, and he began to see the harm and he began to see the foul, the longer you two were together, the closer you two got. And he wasn't okay with that. He knew he was hurting you. He knew he was lying to you and he didn't feel good about it. So somewhere inside that person who was lying to you, there is a moral conscience that surfaced and righted the ship and came clean. Your words, he came clean. You didn't bust him. He came clean. And maybe there's some grace in that coming clean. Maybe there's some benefit of any lingering doubts going forward that he deserves for that coming clean. Not for you busting him. He came clean. That said, your other question, is there something you should be doing differently? We should all have our bullshit detectors firing when we meet new people. But we have to invest new people with our trust. That's the only way we can get into new relationships. But don't be blinded. They say love is blind because people who are in love sometimes can't see that the person that they're with is clearly lying to them or is abusive in some way or controlling or obviously a shitty person that they shouldn't be with. And their friends can see it and their friends are warning them. Like the caller earlier whose boyfriend is slapping chocolate out of her hands during her period. Friends are warning her, but she can't see it because she's in love with other chunks of him that are blinding her to the asshole that is clearly manifesting in him. 
though love is blind, and we should keep that in mind as we're entering into new and loving relationships. Sometimes we need to force ourselves to zoom out and look down dispassionately, if we can, at our relationship. And if we can't look dispassionately at our relationship, our new relationship that we're getting into or a long-term relationship we're already in, then we should lean on our friends and ask our friends for their opinions. So that if they're not blind and they can see, maybe they'll open our eyes. But I don't think you did anything wrong. I really don't. And I don't think you should do anything differently going forward. You want to be open to new people. And the only way to be open is to assume that people, when they tell you about their lives, aren't lying to you while at the same time being on the lookout for those who are. Dear Dan, uh, I am a 42-year-old married lesbian living in in New Jersey. I'm a longtime listener, and I'm hoping you can help me with a problem that's made me exhausted and depressed over the past few weeks. It involves my relationship with my grandmother. She is an American citizen who grew up in Nazi Germany and moved back to the U.S. permanently when she was 18. A year and a half ago, she moved back to New Jersey after living in South Carolina, Since then, I've been her primary caregiver. She is in independent senior living, and I go over every seven to ten days to visit and to bring her groceries. She has always been a conservative, but until she moved back to New Jersey, I didn't realize how far right she was. I'm pretty much a bleeding heart liberal, progressive, and I'm trying my best to move forward after the election of a man I consider vile in every way. To preserve the peace with my grandmother, I have made it clear to her over the past year and a half that because we have a fundamental disagreement over politics, I don't want to discuss this topic with her. She has been persistent, but I have always been able to change the subject until a week before the election. I reiterated multiple times I did not want to talk about Donald Trump. This time I couldn't stop the conversation and we had a major argument that culminated in me stomping out her words. My grandmother said she likes Donald Trump because he reminds her of Hitler that the Jews in Nazi Germany were put in concentration camps because they were refugees and had nowhere to go. That before the war, the Jews had undercut German businesses by undercutting their sales, by selling goods cheaper. Clearly, her views are anti-Semitic and they are repugnant to me. Two weeks later, after the election, I sent her a letter saying that I loved her and would like to come over and see her, provided she could refrain from discussing politics, including Hitler and Donald Trump. I've received no response or call. But though my, through my mother, I found out that she thinks I have no right as her granddaughter to tell her how she should think politically. The whole situation has left me feeling exhausted and devastated. I am trying to take care of myself, but could use some clarity moving forward. I love my grandmother, but I don't like her. The rest of my family feels similarly. My question is, should I make additional attempts to connect with her, even though she won't honor my simple request to refrain from discussing these matters? Should I bother Should I bother trying to continue a relationship with her, considering her racist, anti-Semitic beliefs? Here's a funny story about my grandmother. When Terry and I uh, adopted our son and sent out birth announcements, my mother included my grandmother's address in the list of family that she thought should be notified. And I hadn't really been in touch with my grandmother for years because my grandmother was kind of a raving homophobe and a racist. And... Honoring my mother's request, I sent a birth announcement to my father's mother, my grandmother on my father's side, and a couple of weeks later, in the mail, there was an envelope with familiar handwriting on it, but no return address, and I opened that envelope, and it was the birth announcement. The birth announcement we had mailed to my grandmother, she had put back in the envelope, we sent it to her in, put that envelope in another envelope, and mailed it back to us. I didn't speak to my grandmother ever again, or see her ever again. We joked, Terry and I did, that 
when she died, we would take that birth announcement to the wake. We're Catholic. And we would slip it into the casket and she could spend a fucking eternity with it. In the end, we didn't go to her fucking funeral. My advice to you, fuck your grandmother. You don't have to see your grandmother anymore. Your grandmother has already communicated that to you. Your grandmother has, in a sense, let you go as her granddaughter. You set some completely reasonable terms for interacting with your Nazi racist, batshit, Trump-loving old grandma, which was, I will come see you. We are not going to talk politics. She's not willing to do that, and she hasn't even responded to you. No call, no letter, no response from grandma. So you are free to go. Let your mother deal with her anti-Semitic, crazy, racist, old Hitler-worshipping, moronic, hateful mother. You're done. You're out. And the person that you loved, maybe she's in there somewhere. And maybe grandma has fucking dementia on top of fucking hate and anti-Semitism. So you don't have to feel bad for loving whatever chunk of your grandmother isn't an anti-Semitic nut and a hater and a Trump voter. But you don't have to see her anymore. You have my permission not to see your grandmother anymore. I didn't see my grandmother for years and years and years because she was a nasty, hateful, homophobic, racist nut. She made good cookies. I liked them when I was a kid. But no, you don't have to keep seeing family just because there's blood, just because there's DNA. You don't have to smile on that kind of toxic anti-Semitism or put up with it. So no, you don't see your grandmother anymore. And you don't have to feel bad about it. The person that you thought your grandmother was, that person is dead. It was just a shell rattling around in a home waiting to join the rest of your grandmother in the grave. Hey Dan, I'm a woman in my late twenties and I had a question about boundaries with a roommate and friend. My roommate who is in her mid twenties is a very close friend. And over the summer she broke up with a guy that she was in a non-exclusive relationship with for about a year. Um, they were not exclusive because this guy is in a band and was traveling on tour for most of their relationship. He suggested they keep the relationship casual and open because he wanted to be able to sleep with other girls on tour. Um, but he made it clear that he felt she shouldn't be allowed to sleep with anyone else. And guilt tripped her every time she even spoke about another man. After the breakup, this boy continued to call and text her often, um, telling her he loved her and missed her when she was being agreeable and to shut up and that he hated her when she would bring up her grievances against him. He was very manipulative and she left the relationship feeling like, in her words, that she didn't know who she was anymore. Before I moved in with my roommate, this boy would stay with her and... Uh, when he was back home from tour. And since they broke up, he actually told her that he hooks up with college girls for three or four days at a time so that he can have places to sleep. He asked her if he could stay with her when he got back from tour this time, and she answered no. However, he's been back for several days and has already stayed over twice, including tonight. And he also asked if he could leave his bags here. I don't like this guy. My roommate did not ask me if it was okay for him to stay over beforehand the first time, only after the fact, at which point I told her I wasn't comfortable with him in my home because of the way he treated her, and she said she would respect that. Um, she asked me again earlier this evening if she could bring him over to spend the night, and I changed my tune, told her that she could because, 
while I don't feel comfortable with him here, I also don't feel comfortable policing her love life, and she lives here too. I'm having a hard time figuring out how to deal with this situation. I'm afraid that my asking her not to have him over would be manipulative in its own way, but I also don't want to participate in sort of like rewarding him for manipulating her and allow him to sleep at our apartment rent-free. I care about my friend so much, and it's so painful for me to see her hurt in the past and to see her being pulled back in now by this guy who took advantage of her emotions. But my anger with him is not worth ruining my friendship with her. But at the same time, I feel that I can't idly stand by and watch this boy hurt my best friend. I'm so confused. Is it okay for me to ban him from staying in our apartment, or should I just let her know how I feel and step back besides that? You wonder if banning this guy from your apartment might be manipulative in its own way, and you've already seen your friend be manipulated in bad ways. Yeah, that would be manipulative in kind of an awesome and useful and helpful and constructive way. You need to unselfconsciously, unashamedly, unreservedly be the heavy here. You need to be the backstop against your friend's capacity to be manipulated by this piece of shit. Be the strong one. Be the heavy. Go to your friend and say, I don't want him in my living space. I don't feel comfortable with him in my living space. You can be assertive about your living space and do for her what she seems incapable of doing for herself right now, which is get rid of this guy for her. Draw a line. Set a boundary. He is bad. He is selfish and horrible and controlling and manipulative and obviously has his hooks in her. And you, by dint of being her roommate, by dint of this being your space too, you have the power Perhaps not to remove the hooks entirely, but make it more difficult for him to drive those hooks deeper by keeping him the fuck out of her room, out of her space, out of your apartment. So, do it. Ban him. Be the heavy. And if that causes a a rupture in your relationship with your friend, that's what friends are for. We need our friends at times to risk rupturing our relationships with them by standing up to us when we are doing something damaging and self-destructive and damaging potentially to other people too. You're at risk too while this piece of shit is rattling around in that apartment. We need our friends sometimes to stand up, stare us down, say no, and risk the relationship. Because sometimes what it takes for someone to see that what they're doing or what they're allowing to be done to them is wrong is the damage it's doing to other relationships, to the relationship they have with other people, to family, to friends. And if she can't see for herself what the problem is with this guy, with the way he treats her and the the effect it has on her with their relationship, if it causes then problems also in your relationship with her, maybe she'll see it then. Maybe she won't see it right away. Maybe it'll be three months or six months. Maybe she'll move out in a snit. But when she does have that moment of clarity, she will remember the stand that you took and be grateful for it because she will know then, and hopefully the moment of clarity will come quickly, but she will know then when that moment of clarity does come, that you helped her get to that point. Hi, Dan. Uh, here's my story. I've been dating a woman for about two years. Uh, well, rather, I'd known her for about two years. We've been dating for one. We were good friends for a year before that. Uh, here's my issue or my question. I think she is, in actual fact, a lesbian. Uh, not a bisexual, but a lesbian. 
Um, she's dated women before. Uh, she presents herself, if I can put this without sounding silly, uh, as a lesbian. Um, when I turn up to parties or events uh, with her, people are surprised to learn that she has a boyfriend. <laughs> um, she is openly attractive to women uh, with me. Uh, she's uh, oftentimes suggesting threesomes and so forth. Uh, so I think you get the picture. Uh, she was married before to a man uh, for about six years. Um, apparently in these six years, she had sex less than 10 times, which she attributes primarily to her um, history of not being attracted to men. Um, as I said, she's had uh, relationships with women before. Um, my theory, is, if I could posit one, is that she, in fact, would, uh, if she was doing what her heart desires, is to be with a woman in a full romantic relationship, but she hasn't done so because of uh, fear of persecution from her family. Uh, it may have been complicated for her career, that sort of thing. I personally have some experience with this kind of thing before. I dated a woman for nine years, eight of which were blissful, uh, the last one was uh, hellish. Uh, she hadn't really dated men before me uh, and ultimately went back into women and uh, left me for another woman. So it was an unpleasant last year and an unpleasant experience overall. So uh, I don't know. Apparently, uh, I am a, I'm a guy that lesbian women like to date. Um, but my girlfriend, uh, she's fantastic. She's my best friend, uh, I love her to death, and she's she's super talented and beautiful and all the things you want a relationship to be, but I'm just worrying that at some point that uh, balloon is going to come back to Earth and she's going to do what she probably feels in her heart that she should do. So that's what I'm asking you. What should I do? You should trust your gut and you should have a long gut-based conversation with your girlfriend about who she is and what she wants and how supportive and loving you'll be if indeed she would rather be with women or should be with women. It is a fact and it's a much discussed fact that a lot of lesbians come out later in life and come out after a significant long-term relationship, often with a man, sometimes a marriage with a man. I have a really close personal friend who was married to a man for 20 years, had kids, then came out as a lesbian. So this trajectory that your ex was on, the woman you're with for nine years, not uncommon and it could also be the case for your current girlfriend. And I think you have a right to your feelings and you have a right to your insecurities and you have a right to unpack them with her and either get reassurances from her that she is bisexual perhaps and heteromantic or maybe she is bisexual but largely homoromantic but you're the exception. You're the kind of person she wants to be with. So – Whatever qualities you bring to the table, the other qualities you bring to the table trump her homoromantic orientation. Or maybe you're a crutch. And maybe you're a beard. Maybe she's afraid. Maybe she thinks she has to be in a relationship with a man and she has a great relationship with you and she could see herself settling. And you have to tell her that you don't want to be settled for and you're not anyone's beard and you're not there for her to hide behind all her life and you want her to be who she is and you love her for who she is. And if she is a lesbian or she is a bi woman who should be in a relationship with a woman or would prefer to be in a relationship with a woman, you will love her then also, but as her friend, not her boyfriend anymore. So trust your gut. Have a long, detailed, gut-based conversation with her. Hey, 
Dan, I have a question about um, GGG for you. Um, I do consider myself GGG, um, but there's a situation now, and I'm wondering uh, if I am GGG. So I met this guy, and we hit it off, and I asked him if he wanted to go to a BDSM party at a sex club with me for Halloween. And he said, yeah, you know, that he was pretty into it. He's never uh, been to a kind of club before, um, wasn't really into BDSM, but he was open. And um, since it was Halloween, everyone was going to be dressing up. And he said that he was going to dress up as a woman. And I, as nicely as I could, asked him if he would mind not dressing up as a woman for that evening for that few hours. And he asked me why. And I said, I know it's not something I find attractive when a man dresses like a woman. And I want to feel attracted to you while we're out. And he <laughs> said that uh, that other women find it attractive. And he was actually kind of cool about it. He just said that, you know, that he basically does what he wants to do when he wants to do it, how he wants to do it. And now he didn't feel comfortable going. And so um, he didn't go. So my question is, was I being an asshole? Was I not being GGG? Or or was he maybe... Uh, should he maybe have sucked it up and and dressed differently for for that evening um, with me? So you want to issue a ruling here about who was the jerk? Was he the one being a jerk or were you the one being a jerk? When it's possible you were both being kind of jerky in this circumstance. You can both be jerks simultaneously to one another. I think it was jerky of him not to grok as the kids were only too recently saying and will stop saying as soon as they hear me say it. I think it was unreasonable to him to fail to grok that this was a sex party and you hope to be intimate and sexual with him. And so you wanted him turned out in such a way that you desired him. And you know yourself well enough to know that men in dresses don't do anything for you. And it's kind of a boner killer for you or libido killer for you. And you communicated that to him. It was also kind of jerky of you when he pushed back, not to say, well, let's give it a try. Let's go. Maybe he would have been the exception. Maybe he, maybe everything else you find attractive about him would override your typical and usual non-attraction to guys dressed up as ladies. And you could have given it a shot, given it a chance, given him a chance in that circumstance at that Halloween party. It's also possible that he wanted to go dressed as a woman to this BDSM party because it would have been a kind of armor because he didn't as he said, not so into BDSM and he was going to step outside his comfort zone and go to a BDSM play party with you. And there's something about guys in drag at parties like that where they sort of exist in the room, but they're not part of the sex. There's something about for many guys dressing up in drag, it just pulls them out of the sexual marketplace. They're a different sort of presence. They're not sexually available because Sex and drag, sex and dressing up as a woman if you're a guy, don't really go together very easily or very well. And maybe this was if you guys had unpacked it instead of just tussling over it. Maybe this was his way of saying, I will go to this BDSM play party with you, but I'm going to go in a bubble so that I don't have to do anything. And if that was the reason that he wanted to go in drag dressed as a woman, maybe you could have – arrived at, tell you what, let's go, let's both pledge not to do anything with anybody. We will just observe and hang out and 
watch what other people are doing. I promise I won't try to instigate with you or anyone else. And you can deflect and say no to anybody who tries to instigate with you and we won't get anything going ourselves together. And then he would have been more comfortable going dressed in whatever you would have preferred him to be dressed in. But instead, you guys just went right to DEFCON 5 and trying to figure out who is being a jerk instead of saying, hey, maybe we're both being a little bit jerky and selfish about this because we both have an agenda. Instead of saying, hey, what's really going on here? What's underneath? And how do we find a workable compromise? So who is the jerk? You were. And he was. You both were. Um, hi, Dan. Um, I'm calling in response to the trans person living in a rural part of the country in Fox 28. So I'm a 37-year-old trans guy in Oakland, California. And uh, I guess what I would want to say is that transitioning itself is super hard. Um, you go through just a lot of emotional and physical changes. So I definitely encourage the caller to um, set themselves up for success. Um, you could always move away for a couple of years and then come back and be like, hey, don't you remember me? And then you get your sort of education and integration done but you're doing it from a place of strength instead of a place of vulnerability. If you do want to stay in your town, I think it should only be if you have a really strong support network of people who uh, have your back, who you can just be totally honest with so that you're not feeling an undue amount of stress um, and hardship for you or your kid. So I, I wish you the best of luck on your journey. Hi, I'm calling to gently disagree with Dan's advice to the man whose wife was thinking about smoking pot for the first time. Um, Dan encouraged that she start with edibles. As a daily smoker, I'm going to say that that is a pretty bad idea. Um, although Dan's right that the quantity of THC in edibles has become much more precise than it used to be, it's still really hard for someone, especially someone who doesn't have a lot of experience getting high, to know how much they need. So I suspect that most regular smokers listening right now um, will agree with me. I think that the caller's wife will have one of two experiences. Either she'll consume so little that she won't feel anything, or she will inadvertently consume way too much and it will be really unpleasant. Um, smoking is just a better way to feel effects quickly um, so that the user can moderate her own consumption. Uh, also, for someone who's not used to the feeling of being stoned, smoking can be a big relief because it ends much more quickly. I have really bad memories of being a younger pot user and still feeling weird and awful the next morning after eating an edible. Um, if the issue is hurting your lungs, which is totally fine, then use a small vaporizer. All the same benefits of smoking with none of the tissue damage. Uh, stay away from the brownie. Hi, Dan and the Tech Savvy at Rescue. I was just listening to the call from uh, the debate coach in your last episode who was thinking about leaving the profession. And uh, I also am a debate coach, and I got to tell you, I think what we do is teaching defense against the dark arts. Uh, Voldemort's about to move into the Ministry of Magic, and we desperately need people who can teach critical thinking, research, writing, and rhetoric in order to make a difference in the future. So uh, I want to encourage her not to leave the profession because her kids and our community need people who think that way now more than ever. All right, we're going to leave it there. Before we go, the gift-giving season is upon us, and you can give the gift of the Savage Lovecast Magnum Edition. Just go to savagelovecast.com and click on the gray gift box to send the Savage Lovecast Magnum. No ads, twice as long, more questions, more guests to send the Savage Love Magnum Edition to anybody on your list who needs more of me and more of you and more of your comments and more of your calls and more of your questions savagelovecast.com 206-302-2064 is the number here at the Lovecast if you'd like to record a question or a comment for a future show give us a buzz 
302-2064. If you want to hear me talking politics, which I sometimes talk about on this show, I talk about politics almost every week on Blabbermouth, The Stranger's other podcast with Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist Eli Sanders as host and me as regular Loudmouth guest. And read my advice column, Savage Love, the column that started it all, every week in the Detroit Metro Times and other publications all across the country. Follow me on Twitter at FakeDanSavage. And the Savage Lovecast is produced every week by Nancy Hartunian and me in the Tech Savvy at Risk You Then, Nancy. We will all be back at you next week with an installment of the Savage Lovecast. Thanks for downloading.